Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. But talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Nerdist Writer Series. Yeah. yeah. All right. Welcome to the Nerdist Writing Series, uh, an informal chat about television writing and the business of writing television. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, um, a stage show in the style of old-time radio. For more information, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. Um, let's get right to it. Our first panelist uh, is a Los Angeles native. Uh, who, before breaking into television, made a number of short films, which maybe we'll ask him about. Who knows? Uh, his first foray into TV is USA's hugely successful Burn Notice. Yes. Right? You're right. It's a good show. Uh, the Burn Notice prequel, starring Bruce Campbell, premieres tonight at 9 o'clock. And if you're all very good, we will be out in time to go home and watch it. Uh, please welcome Matt Nix. Uh, our next panelist uh, has written on such acclaimed series as Once and Again, Everwood, Desperate Housewives, and uh, Kings, and The Event. He's also the creator of uh, The Oaks, which was a spec pilot that started a massive bidding war among all the major networks. This was a few years ago. Uh, landed at Fox and was recently made into a miniseries on Britain's ITV. Uh, and we will, he'll tell us all about this stuff. It's a fascinating story. Please welcome David Schulner. <laughs> and finally... Uh, our, our third panelist began his career as a performer, began writing for a couple of short-lived sitcoms, uh, and after briefly working on Home Improvement, he went on to write for Murphy Brown for three seasons, uh, then to The Larry Sanders Show, yeah, uh, for which he won an Emmy for co-writing the series finale. Uh, after bouncing around on a few more shows and creating the series Style and Substance and The George Wendt Show, he joined with comic Dennis Leary to create both uh, the half-hour sitcom The Job and later, excuse me, later the FX series Rescue Me. Yes. Uh, he's a, a acclaimed screenwriter. He's, he's written films Analyze This and Analyze That. And uh, America's Sweethearts, among many others. He currently has two pilots in contention, uh, I believe, at different networks. Please welcome Peter Tolan. Yeah, Daddy. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Peter. Hello. Thank you for being here. Um, we usually start out by talking about uh, either, you know, you're breaking into the business or the first thing you get paid for, but... I'm curious to know from you guys uh, about your writing backgrounds. Uh, did you write not so much in your you know, high school years, but after that as you were becoming adults uh, and you came out here to Hollywood? Uh, we all have to do a certain amount of writing for free. 
Did you guys do a ton of writing for free before you started getting paid as writers? What was your entree into the business, uh, Matt? Um, hmm. Uh, <laughs> this this actually is not going to sound terribly artistic, but uh, I uh, started my first job out of college. I worked at a talent agency, um, and then I worked in development. And it was really my time in development that uh, convinced me that I should take a crack at writing. It's something that I'd always done, sort of as a hobby. And then, um, and then, frankly, I was in development. I was like, "Oh, that's the bar. I can totally do that." Um, and uh, and then I quit. And uh, after much urging from my wife, um, and started writing full time. And yeah, I I I guess I was probably I think I wrote like three feature specs before I got hired to do kind of. Um, it was, I think it was the worst job Sony has ever had for a screenwriter. Um, it was write a movie that we've already put into turnaround unofficially, but uh, we want to hire the cheapest screenwriter we can possibly find because we don't want to have an embarrassing conversation with Helen Hunt. And I said, I am your man. <laughs> and I wrote that movie um, and was actually called to tell, I was, they called to tell me it was dead before I had turned in the script. And I was like, do I still turn it in? And they were like, oh, you haven't turned it in. Oh, oh, yeah. Yes, go right ahead. So that was my glamorous entree into Hollywood. Uh, David, what about you? Um, I uh, started as a playwright. And um, so it's two things. I came out here to write... Um, for South Coast Rep in Costa Mesa. Um, I've been doing plays. They commissioned two plays of mine, so I came out here from Minneapolis. Uh, and I just at that point, I was just ready to get a change of weather. So I came out here to write the plays and just to be in sunshine. And I started dating a girl who wrote for Dawson's Creek. <laughs> People can't do that now, right? <laughs> I guess you have to find someone else to date on another show. But, um, she may have been 17. Right. <laughs> you can't do that now because it's illegal. Yes. Um, so she read this play of mine, and uh, she said, uh, I'm not going to give this to my agent because you're going to get the job that I want. And literally, I didn't own a television. Um, I, I lived in Long Beach, you know, because it was easy for the commute to Costa Mesa. And so she gave a play that I wrote to her agent, and um, I got the job she wanted. <laughs> what, what was that job? That was once again. Oh. And uh, Ed Zwick read the play and said, um, would you like to write for TV? And I, I said, I, honestly, I don't know how. And he said, don't worry, we'll teach you. So that was, it was the greatest experience I could have I hoped for. Wow. Um, what so, happened to the girl? Uh, she, I ended up marrying her best friend. <laughs> We're not content to fuck her over once. <laughs> Go back for seconds. <laughs> she was the maid of honor at the wedding. So, uh, I did a big speech. I did a big thank you, like, for my career, uh, my wife. She's doing just fine. <laughs> uh, so my free writing was playwriting. Um, ten years. Um, and, you know, you get a $6,000 commission from a theater and you've, you've hit pay dirt and you just think, like, you know, I remember going, I remember my first commission, I was in New York and I went to Sparrow's to celebrate. And I, <laughs> and I ordered extra meat on my <laughs> It was awesome. So <laughs> yeah, it's huge. 
Uh, Peter, we talked a little bit about uh, your background as a performer. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? How, did that segue into writing? Yeah, I was. I, I had started out as an actor, and uh, I, there there was not much. Uh, well, there wasn't a hue and cry for me to continue in that. Field. <laughs> uh, I would get uh, reviews that said he would make a good host. <laughs> really, I think that was always great. And at the same time, I started to write plays too in New York. And there was a theater at the time. This was this was a while ago. Uh, the Manhattan Punchline Theater that's now defunct, and they did an annual festival of one-act comedies, and I figure, I can write a one-act. It's just, you know, at least it's not two acts. <laughs> and, uh, and I wrote uh, what's really just really a sketch, more than it's not really a play, it's more of a sketch, but it got, it, it was performed. And, uh, you know, it was reviewed in the Times, and somebody out here who actually must have stolen their neighbor's times read it and uh, and said you're very glib you should be in television mm -hmm. and I resisted actually for a couple of years I don't know why because I was making that kind of money <laughs> I was making that playwriting money which was a lot of money uh, and then I, I finally just wrote a Murphy Brown spec script and got hired on the show and oh. it came out and that's not I mean we've talked before that in previous yeah. weeks so yeah, that's that not what you're supposed to do but that's what I did yeah. so how did that happen how did the how did your script get into the hands of the Murphy Brown people? Well, I was I was ignorant, you know, at the time. I, I not that I'm no more ignorant today, but I mean, I was ignorant fully about the business. And I worked at an ad agency. I was a copywriter, and I remember going into the this will date the whole thing, like on an IBM Selectric, you know, with a with a, a it had the correction strip in it. That was the huge innovation, you know, so that you didn't have to use the whiteout. And I wrote a Murphy Brown script. I didn't know. I think I asked, I was represented by William Morris for the, because I, I had a partner who is now the executive producer of uh, Nurse Jackie. And we were partners, comedy partners. And so we were re represented by them, uh, by William Morris. And I said, I think I want to write for television. And they jizzed, of course, <laughs> because they were so used to making all that money off the act. And, uh, and so they, they gave me, I think, a copy of, of, a, of what a Murphy Brown script would look like, because that's the big thing. I didn't know what it would look like. And I sat at, after hours in the ad agency and typed this thing out. And then I would just say to my agents, you know, totally ignorant, just say, well, has Diane English read it? <laughs> because I really don't want to work on any other show. Because I don't really watch television. And my wife at the time, um, well, I've killed her. So. <laughs> Funny. I mean, my wife at the I did the time. It's not a big deal. But anyway, my wife at the time, she watched television. See, I didn't, but she watched it. And she used to watch what was on CBS on Monday nights. And that's the only reason I knew. I said, well, that's a show that I could write. So I wrote that show. And I said, that's the one I want to do. I don't really want to work on that. And so I, I got hired. Did you, ever, did you ever find out what they responded to in your script? They just thought that the characters were very, you know, were very well written, that the that it was a, a script that they themselves would have written. Not as good, <laughs> but no, but I mean, really, it's hard to write a spec script. But um, it, yeah, that's, it, they just felt it was tonally correct. Mm -hmm. You know, the character sounded right, and the, the story was right, and all that. Mm -hmm. So it was a good mimic, I guess. And it goes a long way, especially when the way to do it was to write specs of existing shows. Sure. Absolutely. Um, uh, David, the same, the same question, I'm curious. Uh, did you ever find out what Zwick responded to in your play? Yeah, the the play was um it was like a it took place um, ninety minutes over like sixty years, and this, the each scene was no more sometimes than a half a page, 
and then it would transition and you'd be in another year or you'd be a week later or a day later and so basically the scenes were no more than a page and a half and he said that's good for TV he had hired some other playwrights who were writing like four or five page scenes and uh, he said I couldn't do that Um, so the the, uh, being, being able to pack in as much as I as much as you could in as little amount of space yeah. was why they hired me. Uh, and Matt, that was cheap. <laughs> well, sure, that always goes a long way. Uh, Matt, am I correct that Burn Notice is your first foray into television? Yeah, I did. Um, uh, I got a call one day from my agent. I had been writing uh, movie scripts for a long time, um, and I was working steadily, but nothing was getting made. And then one day, uh, my agent called me and said you're doing television this year. And I said, I thought you had to have done television before to do that. And he said, no, they like feature guys now. And I said, okay. <laughs> um, and so he said, come up with some ideas. And then um, I, I ended up doing a, NBC had something that, an idea that they wanted that I did simultaneously with Burn Notice. And I just pitched Burn Notice and it was the first thing I pitched uh, as a, you know, in, in television. And then they sort of ended up doing it. So that was the that was the process. I didn't really have any perspective on it, but it was sure. great. But they and they were, had all seen these. Had they been sent the feature uh, scripts that didn't that weren't made? Had they yeah, yeah. They read they, they read a script uh, that I'd written. They read they read a feature script that I'd written and and felt that it was tonally right for the network. Um, and then actually, I think this doesn't happen that often uh, for feature writers in television, but. Um, I was very fortunate in that, um, I had done so much, I mean, in order to work consistently for the something like eight years that I was working in features, I pitched on everything, like every fucking thing you can imagine. Three different movies about students making porn films. Uh, didn't get any of those jobs, but I, you know, like just all over the place. So I had a lot of experience just um, generating stories. I mean, I'd been sort of this, uh, you know, hustling feature writer for so long that I was um, that I was actually more accustomed than I think a lot of feature writers are to coming in and just uh, pitching and oh, you don't like that? Okay, how about this? Uh, you know, it was very. I was a lot. I was flexible, and and I was also fast because, again, in order to stay working as a feature writer, um, I never stopped looking for work. It didn't matter how many features I lined up. I was always hustling because, you know, that's that's how you, you know, stay employed. And so, um, so it was sort of a combination of those things. And then it was also a very long development process. They didn't dis- make a decision on burn notice for I think a year. So I was also uh, fortunate in that they had a year to give me notes and have me change things on the script. And so I think I went through three different um, stories for the the pilot script for Burn Notice. And you know they liked it and they wanted to change the tone. And so the normal uh, pilot process is you write a pilot and they make it and you, there's like a month and then it's done. You know, they, they, they decide to make it or not make it and then they make the pilot and then that takes another couple months and then it's over. In the case of Burnout, it was like a year. So they had a lot of time to get used to me. And, and that's why I think when the show went ahead, I got to be showrunner rather than feature writer partnered with experienced showrunner. And that's happened. I mean, USA is now, that's sort of what they do. You know, they'll nurture that talent. And I think the guy from Royal Pains also, it's his first uh, experience 
not only running a show but having a series or being on a series. Yeah, they like uh, they, they. I mean, I think it's it's actually a good model for cable. Um, you can't uh, afford to hire you know fancy experienced writers. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, no, but I mean it, it's true. Like you need. Uh, um, if, a, if, a, if, a, if Burn Notice had been on a broadcast network, um, they would have, you know, really done the search for a super experienced, you know, big fancy showrunner. But on cable, if they can, if they can have a creator showrunner, it's just better for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and so I was fortunate in that that was the one that went, not the NBC one. So let's uh, let's talk for a minute. That's a nice segue to uh, the pitching process. And I, I will start with you again. Um, was USA the only place that you took burn notice? No. So how did you vary the pitch as you went along? Where did the show come from? What was the initial pitch? How was it? How did it evolve once uh, you did sell it? Um, it was. <clears throat> it started out as a darker show. I mean, I think probably the. Uh, yeah, it started out as a show that would have been on FX, um, and USA. Uh, w- one of the things that I realized in pitching um, at a certain point was, I'd spent much of my career pitching, um, <laughs> and I would sort of like pitch as if I was making an argument as to why you should hire me. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't that engaging. <laughs> um, and I would get out of pitches and people would be like, that fellow is smart. He argues well. We will hire the funny guy. And so uh, I, uh, so at a certain point I realized, like I'd done, I, I'm not the actor you are, um, or the host, oh. yes. Um, but I did realize at a certain point that um, that you really need to give people the experience of watching the show when you pitch. Uh, some sense of what that is. And so rather than just tell the story, I had, by that point in my career, I'd sort of turned a corner with regard to pitching, and I was just like, fuck it. If I make a fool out of myself, I make a fool out of myself. And I started acting scenes out um, in the room. And so in the case of Burn Notice, it wasn't like I acted whole scenes, but I did do the voiceovers. And so I'd kind of written the voiceovers, and I said, okay, so this is this is kind of what it would sound like, and we have these voiceover components, and, and you know, kind of did them. And so uh, more than anything else, I think that's what sold it because it's not like there's never been a PI show with a spy or, I mean, there were a lot of reasons that, you know, you could say that that was something that had been done before, but what hadn't been done before was that show plus a guy explaining to you how he does things in interesting counterintuitive ways, showcasing spy technique, that kind of thing. And so that, I think that had a lot to do with it. So yeah, I varied it some, I, I think... Um, they can kind of tell when you're whoring, you know, like uh, when you go into CBS and you're like, and then there's science while they detect things. Um, the, uh, they know. Um, but at the same time, you can sort of, uh, you can vary things a little bit and 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 tell yourself that it's going to work and it never does. I mean, it, it, it's just not that effective in my experience. I'm not that good at it, I guess. So. Uh, David, take us through uh, the Oaks because that's a yeah. We'll we'll, we'll we'll you know come back to it. Yeah, I, I well, think uh, my aversion to pitching, <laughs> my my complete fear and terror of having to act, you know just having to perform. Um, so I just I just I'm not going to do it. I'm going to spend that time writing a spec. 
So, and that's what I've been doing. Um, it takes me about the same amount of time to, to write the damn thing as it does to actually do the pitch. So I just wrote this spec, um, and it, it was a, someone read it, and the next day there was an offer to buy it, and in 24 hours all three networks were bidding on it. Um, and this is after my agent was like, eh, I don't know, <laughs> you, know you should really pitch, specs are out. Pilot about trees. <laughs> and so in order to you know, win the bidding war, Fox said they would pick it up straight to series. 13 episodes. Wow. Um, huge penalty if they don't do it. Uh, so we said, okay. Um, uh, we started shooting the day of the writer's strike. <laughs> um, so it was really... And the process itself was fraught um, because they had spent so much money on it. And essentially, it was a first draft. Um, I, I mean, it was crazy. And... Uh, and they, you know, they blew so much smoke up my ass uh, to get me to buy it. When they started giving notes on it and trying to change the things that they had said they loved, I was, I was not very uh, cooperative, um, and I, you know, I, not very collaborative. <laughs> I already had the money in the bank. What were they going to do? Um, so, uh, so. Shooting it was miserable. Um, I was picketing the studio where we were filming. <laughs> so, and essentially, we were in Manhattan Beach. So I was, you know, no studio. It's like not like picketing the Fox lot. Uh, it was the hairdressers and the, the gaffers. And I'm like, you know, like picketing outside. And they're like... Hey, dude. Like, hey, guys. Good job today. Tell me how it went on your way out. Um, so it was really miserable. And um, they ended up uh, getting the finished pilot. They ended up, this was, Jeremy Renner was the lead. Matt Morrison was in it. Um, uh, Michael Cuesta was the director, director of uh, Dexter, and really great director. Uh, they ended up firing everybody, um, and we, casting director, everyone, they fired everyone, made us fire everyone, and then they said they weren't actually going to pick it up after all. So uh, in this great integration, 20th spent about $11, $12 million on the pilot, because, and they built this elaborate set, um, because they thought it was going to be amortized over 13 episodes. So when Fox, their parent company, said we're not picking it up, it was a huge craziness within their company. Uh, but luckily, Fox had spent so much, 20th had spent so much money, they were incentivized to try and sell it elsewhere. So they ended up selling it to ITV, the, con the um, concept, uh, to ITV in Great Britain. And uh, they hired one of the Doctor Who writers, very talented guy. And he wrote a six, eight, you know, we broke 13 episodes, we had a show Bible. I hired a staff. We had a room going, so they took all everything that we did, and they made a very successful six-hour miniseries that just finished um, with six million viewers a night. It was number one every uh, every night that it aired. Um, <laughs> That's some satisfaction. And I had nothing to do with yeah. it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, did, did you have nothing to do with it? I had nothing to do with it. Are you happy with the product? I have not seen it. <laughs> I, have a, I, have a, I have the DVDs. Uh, it's now called Marchlands. Um, I have the DVDs at home, and, I, and every time I go to watch them, I'm like, okay, either it's going to be better than what I did, and then I suck, or it's going to be worse than what I did, and then I kind of suck. I still kind of suck. 
Um, so I have this real aversion to watching them, but uh, they're sitting on my washing machine. <laughs> so I will watch them soon. So a long way of saying um, I've had more success uh, writing specs than pitching. Um, and I've never actually pitched. I still haven't pitched. Um, I'm on an overall deal at NBC, and so now with that kind of thing, they basically are, you go in pitching them something that they're already going, you know they're going to buy. Um, so. <laughs> so you don't even bother? Yeah. <laughs> so, you What know. time do you wake up? I'll tell them about the spec that I just wrote. <laughs> Um, Peter, let's let's go back. Uh, I know these guys want to hear about Rescue Me, but I want to hear about the job. Oh, uh, have you guys seen the job? It's a great show. This is really, it's yeah. a great show. I will say myself that that is a great show. It is a great. It's a legitimately great, great show. show. Um, tell me about pitching that show. Uh, it was really easy because uh, I forget what I had done before. What Dennis? Dennis had a film career of, of or he kept telling me he did, um, <laughs> and. Uh, and I forget what I had done, but we we came we were we came from a very entitled place on that, where we went to I think it was at ABC, and we said, "Look, here's the show we're going to do, and this is the guy, and he's a he's got pill popping kind of semi alcoholic Nyquil swigging, you know, philanderer, and he's got a black girlfriend, and he's married, and these are the people who work and everything like that, and that's the show we're going to do, and if you don't like it, just tell us, and we'll do it someplace else, and that was really the pitch. We just said that's that's the show we're going to do." If you don't like it, just tell us and we'll do it someplace else. So they called the next day and said, does she have to be black? <laughs> they said, does the girlfriend have to be black? And we said, yes. <laughs> okay, go make the show. So uh, <laughs> that was the big argument. So, so we, we really made the show. It was really based on, uh, Dennis had done the uh, remake of the Thomas Crown Affair. He played a detective in that. And he had a technical advisor, uh, a New York City detective named Mike Charles. And Mike's story was just as fucking crazy as anything that was on the screen. And Dennis just looked at the guy and said, we, we got to do this story. So I, I didn't know Dennis. I, I take great delight in saying that I never really thought much of his stand-up. Uh, I usually say that to him. It's much better when I say it to him. Uh, uh, and... I got a call. I, I was in New York. I don't know why I was in New York, but I got a call saying Dennis Lear would like to meet you. He lived in Connecticut. I had to take a car all the way to Connecticut. And he had a big Irish wolfhound that went right for my balls as soon as I got. You know. It sounds about right. Yeah, I don't really like that. I mean, <laughs> but I would expect no less. Yes, I see that, but I mean, not in Connecticut. So, uh, so we met, and he gave me that thing, which I don't know if you guys have ever had this when you meet with talent. And they know your talent. He knew me from Larry Sanders, right? He said, knew Larry Sanders. So he said, this guy must be good. But I haven't been good for him yet. Mm. So they look at you like this. <laughs> waiting to see when you're going to be good for them. So I had that meeting first. <laughs> and at a certain point, I said, well, yeah, we should, we should try to do this. We should you know, be funny half hour, single camera thing. There were not a lot of those at the time. And um, he said, well, I've written some pages to give you an idea of what the character would be, which, you know, I've said a couple times that, you know, like pages from an actor is like a five-year-old with a Glock. (laughs) 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 Nothing good can come of it, you know? So he gave, well, it turned out not to be pages. It turned out to be a draft of a script. And I was like, oh, shit, this is getting worse every day. So I take the script. I said, I'll read it on the way back into the city. 
And I don't remember much about it. I do remember that there was a reenactment, and this says a lot about Dennis, we're both from Massachusetts, but a reenactment of the Kennedy assassination <laughs> as a device to get, a, to get someone to talk. I, I, like they put him in the car and said, all right, we're in Dealey Plaza now, and there's the depository. Now, do you want to tell us anything? And he's like, no. All right, there's the fence, and you know, I don't know, what the fuck. But as I'm reading it, I realize it's not bad, and the characters are good, and I'm, I'm sort of reading through, and then I start to go, okay, what would I write next as I turn the page? And it would be there, or some version of it. And I went, hmm, okay. I said, we're going to write this together, which was a huge mistake, because then he assumed that, you know, we would write everything together. If anybody's ever seen Rescue Me or The Job, we never had a single credit. We had a shared credit on everything. Like the Beatles. Like, yeah, everything. Didn't matter who wrote it. So anyway, that's how that all came about. And I did not leave the Kennedy assassination, and I changed it, but that's how that came about. Uh, then let's back up a little bit, because you were in that enviable position to pitch this show that you wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, but before that, you had pitched a couple of shows. Uh, I saw the George Wendt show. Sure. You were the creator. And, There's a uh, lot of shit on there. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, by the way. <laughs> let's say, uh, let's say it's all, extensive. It's uh, let me tell you, I'll tell you what the, what the problem is. I'm a really good pitcher. How do you do it? Well, it's just what Matt said. It really is that you, you go into the room and you act out the show. And you, you try to, I mean, you, first of all, the way I do it is, Tell it as fast as you can and get the fuck out because that's what they want. They're busy people. They don't want you to sit there and talk for 25, 35 minutes about this character and this plot twist and this thing. They don't want to hear that. They want you to come in and go, here's what it is. Boom. And say it as the log line. Say it as do the one-minute pitch. Now, presumably, you haven't been shown the door yet. Now you do the five-minute pitch where you actually start to flesh out the characters and pitch jokes, if it's a comedy. You pitch actual things that are going to be in the show that you assume will be funny. So you can get a laugh in the room. And then if they're still with you after six minutes, now really start to go in and say, here's what could happen over the life of the series. Here's the relationship of this character to this character. Here's how the, here's the structure of the, you know, get into this. And, if, and just at the point you're losing them, you know, feign some kind of an asthma attack and get out. <laughs> get out. And that's really it. I mean, you know, it's that simple. My problem is I can pitch anything, even the shit. And then you make it, you know, you make it and you go, I think this is shit. <laughs> and then you're stuck doing episodes. and They're all shit. There's no show, you know. You guys haven't done it a lot, but there's times where you do a pilot and you go, what's the next show? Hmm. <laughs> I don't think there is one. Uh, and you're right fucked. Let's, uh, a lot of those shows. Were I, I want to dwell on this shit for just a minute. <laughs> I can tell you, you read two things. One was the George Wendt show, and one was uh, Style and Substance. Now, nobody knows these shows, and for good reason. Although, they do have some particular charm. Style and Substance was made for one reason. And this is not an organic reason. I had an overall deal at Disney, and they paid me a lot of money. This was the last of the big overall deals, and I got it. It's the only time in my life I hit it just the right time, <laughs> you know? So I had all this. I was getting all this money, and I really was doing nothing. And, and I said to them, don't you want me to read scripts or even clean up behind the Goofy? <laughs> Goofy's incontinent. Nobody really knows that. And they would say no, and I felt bad. But they, so this was around the time that Martha Stewart rose to prominence. And they said, we got to do a show about Martha Stewart. 
And they looked around and they, and they said, who are we paying so much money? Make him do it. Now, I don't want to do a show about Martha Stewart, but I had a check, so I, did, so I wrote a show about Martha Stewart. That's why. So is there, uh, is there a passion to that? Is there a, a, a passion that drives that, that show forward? Not necessarily. Was it funny? Yeah. It was, it was good and weird. And it's, uh, Jean Smart was in it, and she's great. And Nancy McKeon was in it, and she's a wonderful person. <laughs> <laughs> Les Moonves called me and said, "I would really, if you would make me a, you would make me a happy Jew, if you would cast Nancy McKeon as the second lead of this." And I asked him if he would convert. <laughs> and he said no. And she is a delightful person. She may not have been. I thought she did a very good job. She may not have been the right person. The George Wentz show is a different thing. And these are all just marked by bad choices in history. George, again, a really swell guy, a great guy to work with and fun. But I had, I had made a mistake, which was, and this happens all the time, and, I, and there are countless examples of this, and I'm sure you can all come up with an example. It's when something is wonderful, and you go, that should be a TV show. No, it shouldn't. It's <laughs> wonderful as the thing it is. That doesn't mean it's going to be a good TV show. And the thing that it was that I liked as a listener was Car Talk on National Public Radio. The two guys who do that, that car show. And there's something, very, maybe it's just because I'm from Massachusetts and I missed the accent. I don't know. But there's something very endearing about the relationship of those two guys and the fact that they are unpolished and make each other laugh and there's an infectiousness to those two guys. When you cast it, when you show them, when you see them, when you have to build a construct to make, it's not the same thing anymore, and you've killed it. You've killed the thing that made it wonderful. And that's what I did. <laughs> and I said to, I said, at one point in the casting thing, somebody said, George went, because Cheers had just ended, and they were trying to recast everybody who'd been at Cheers as a sure thing, as their next thing was going to be a big thing. And I said, I don't think he's right. And I turned it down. And then at a certain point, a month, two months, three months later, as I'm still trying to cast it, they came back and said, we will make the pilot if you, if you hire George Wynn. And I did it. And I'm not saying that was the, a bad choice, but because he is a wonderful guy, but maybe it wasn't the, the right choice. Or maybe I killed it in the first place trying to it's the same thing as like, why does, why is Chris Rock, why hasn't Chris Rock really made it beyond his stand-up act? Because his stand-up act is a thing of beauty and passion, and it's very raw and real. That's him. That's him up there. Every time they put him into something else, it just misses, because it's not him anymore. It's him sanitized, or it's him not with his own voice, and there's a million different examples of that. Uh, just real quick on that particular subject. Have you ever broken down uh, Chris Rock's? No, no, yeah, no. I, I, I was I was once hired to write a movie for Chris Rock, okay. and so I got a bunch of his stand-up, and I was listening to his stand-up, and um, and I started breaking down like, okay, how does the guy talk? Like, what what's the? How would you actually deliver this in a dramatic form? And the problem that I ran into is his comedy is all about repetition. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to his stage act, it'll be like, water bottles, huge laugh. 
Water bottles. Huge laugh. Motherfucking water. Motherfucking water bottle. Right. And then and then at a certain point, like and, and people know his act enough that they know that they are anticipating something great is coming about water bottles, and he's not letting them have it yet. And then when it comes, it's really funny, but like if you actually go sort of jokes per page on on uh, if you transcribed his act and you said actual things that have funny content that you can read per page in a Chris Rock stand-up act, it's like one thing in three pages, right? And the rest of it is just his attitude and who he is on stage. And so I think that's a great example of something. You just can't, you can't turn around and do that and um, you can't turn around and, and write that and expect the same thing. And if you, if you do this particular explanation that I'm doing right now to an executive, like you lost them in the first sentence. Like, the, what do you mean? Like you transcribe it? No, you just do Chris Rock. It's great. No, but you see, if you do the thing, what are you talking about? Just do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the reason I the reason I wanted to uh, get into the the stuff that you called the shit a little bit yeah and I'll actually start with David on this because I think you'll you'll have uh, no no I think you'll you'll be able to speak to this uh, in regard to the the notes that you received on the Oaks during that pilot because I would imagine you know with the Nancy McKeon stuff with especially with casting but also during the process of writing the script or getting notes on the script uh, you get some great stuff and you get some terrible stuff uh, so I'd like to hear about how each of you guys have uh, had the creative relationship with the network uh, but let's start with this, the, the notes that you received on the Oaks that you reacted strongly to well so many of them were given to me probably 12 hours before the writer's strike so uh, I typed very very slowly um, <laughs> But you know, we talk about these guys are talking about casting, and it's it's really I mean that that's ninety percent of what you're getting. Um, you know, stupid. I mean, you know, it's a, it's about this family that's haunted by a ghost, and this little girl, like this ten year old girl, like the trope. You know, she needs to be very haunted, and it, it's, that's the series. And the the note we got was the girl that we chose. She was too haunted. <laughs> um, she wasn't, and I, you know. I, it was those kind of. I was not. Um, Sean Ryan was my executive producer, and uh, Sean doesn't even. Sean doesn't answer emails. He doesn't like return calls. And yeah, I've been I, trying to get him for the series. But I know. <laughs> but it's very uh, calculated. I had a knee-jerk reaction to every bad note, every bad cast, and I was at a fever pitch the entire time. Sean, and by the time Sean would answer an email, the problem had already passed. Or someone else had already intervened that was more suited to answer that question. So I, more than the bad notes that I got, I just reacted to them as poorly as possible. There's a way to get bad notes and ignore them, incorporate them uh, in a way that, that you... I mean, these guys can attest to that, but you know, I, I'm, in a, I'm a great example of what not to do. Um, you know... So, <laughs> well, thanks I for being more here. than the bad notes that I got. I the way that I uh, handled them was it was far worse, um, and it's just it's stupid and petty and 
I, I cut my nose off. I said, oh, you want me to do that stupid thing? It's going to ruin the show, and I'm going to show you how it's going to ruin the show. <laughs> yeah. So I did it and said, fuck you. And then uh, we did a writer's strike, and I couldn't change it. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, that was my great experience. Uh, uh, Matt, rather than go into uh, Burn Notice, I'm curious about the kinds of network notes, because you made, then after Burn Notice made the leap to Fox, a major network for the good guys, uh, what was the relationship like with the network during the process and once the show was on the air as well? Um, I mean, actually, uh, they were pretty... Uh, <laughs> what's the best way to put this? Um, no, actually, the truth is I pretty much have a policy with notes calls. If I get a note, my reaction is always some version of, oh, okay, all right, let's take a look at that. All right, let's see what we can do. And if I like it, I'll say, oh, great, okay, I'll wait. That, that's a terrific idea, I'll do that. And if I, if I hate it, I actually do discipline myself to always say, all right, well, let me take a look at that. And I guess in my experience, um, there's always, if you're not dealing with total idiots, and sometimes you are, but fortunately in my two television shows, I have not dealt with total idiots. Um, you may be dealing with very smart people who have very little time. Uh, you may be dealing with obscure political agendas or things happening behind the scenes uh, that, that you're not privy to. You may be dealing with all sorts of things, but you don't necessarily know what you're dealing with when you get the note. And reacting really quickly to them, it does, like, you may you may blast someone who's being forced to give you the note at gunpoint and you've just made an enemy of the one person who could have been your ally in fighting the note. And that's something that you kind of only learn through experience. And so in that case, um, basically my policy is if I don't agree with a note, and there were notes that I didn't agree with on the good guys, but if I don't agree with a, a note, and on burn notice, but um, then I will simply go in and fix it the way that I think it should be fixed. However, it, you know, I sort of start with the idea that if somebody cared about it enough to give me a note, then I'm going to really legitimately try to address it in some way, shape, or form. And I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, the, if you passive-aggressively take a note, two things can happen. You can turn it in, and they love it, and you're fucked. Or you can turn it in and they hate it and you're fucked. There's no way you can win if you just do something you don't believe in. And so I just, you know, sort of went with my policy from Burn Notice that I'd learned on Burn Notice of just do, you know, do what you think needs to be done. And if somebody cares enough to give the note, give it a look and figure out what you would do to address that or make that better. And I, I, I can't even count the number of times that I've been given a note and I've actually done the exact opposite of the note. But that combined with a sort of friendly pitch as to why doing the exact opposite of what you told me was actually doing what you said on a deeper level. Um, the, like, you'd be surprised how many times that works. And uh, because the truth is, um, it doesn't, in my experience, it doesn't do you any good to go into that relationship deciding that you're working with idiots. Because even if it isn't true, you will make it true. You can turn you can turn an executive into an idiot very easily. Um, and the great thing, actually, is when you're the easy call for the network, um, 
the and when you keep your powder dry and you only really fight when it really matters um i had learned this great lesson on on burn notice where if i really 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 disagreed with something and if i really 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 had to fight it for real um i couldn't take the note in any way shape or form i would write out a reasoned argument um and it didn't matter how long it took um and just say exactly why I thought what I thought and then say, hey, you know, make your call. You're the boss. But here is seven pages about why you should not do why we why we should not do that. And I realized I'd sort of won that battle when at the end of the first year of burn notice, I sent one of the three missives like that I sent that year. And the head of the network didn't even read it. He just said, oh, it's one of Matt's things. Let him do what he wants, right? <laughs> and basically figuring if it was really that important to me, I'd given him everything he wanted whenever it was legit. He was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. He can, he can have it. As long as he heard that part of the note, it's fine. And so on the good guys, you know, you just – it was sort of – there was once, – once I had my head around that particular set of people and what they wanted – um, but you kind of have to listen deeply to the politics behind the scene, scenes, who's talking to whom, um, how they're interacting, and what's really going on, and take the notes. It's a cliche, but it's true. Whatever the note behind the note is. And ideally, you can reach the point where, you know, by the end, a note's calling the good guys. And it had something to do with the fact that the show was failing. Um, but... Uh, the notes calls on the good guys were 20 minutes long. And once your executives are only allotting 20 minutes for a notes call, which consists of five minutes of joking around and five minutes of wrapping up what you said. So it's really just 10 minutes of discussion. You've won the battle. I mean, they don't, <laughs> they read the script an hour ago. They give you whatever notes they had in the 20 minutes and then you're done. So, but it, that you kind of have to, you got to be the good guy for a long time to earn that. Uh, Peter, has this been your experience as well? Uh, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear as well the kinds of relate the relationship that you guys had with FX as opposed to say uh, one of the major yeah, networks. The FX relationship was the best I've ever had yeah. in my entire career. In that John Langraff, who's the head of FX, would actually give us notes. Very few of them, and every now and then would give you a note that would actually save the episode. So that's never happened in my experience. Never, I've never had somebody actually help me out in the course of trying to figure out what, what to do. Um, I have in the past been had a very contentious relationship with uh, network executives. And it's, I won't, I'm not going to bore you with some of the stories that involve gunplay. But, uh, <laughs> but everything that Matt said is true. You don't know where these notes are coming from. And ultimately, one of the problems is, is interpretation. And also the understanding several things about television, especially one is it's not art. There can be art in it, but it's a business. And if you want to be an artist, start painting, you know, because this is not a place for artists. It's the place where you can approximate art, but ultimately you are in a business. And you're talking to people who are not in the same business as you are. You think you're in the same business, but you're not. You're making flowers, or you're selling flowers, and they're selling concrete. And you're just trying to figure out a way to get along. You know, there's, it's a complete communication problem. I recently talked to my therapist after hanging up on a notes call about three weeks ago. So I still haven't fucking learned. <laughs> and I said, why do I do that? Why do I do that? And 
he said to me, do you know this uh, martial art Aikido? And I said, well, I know all the martial arts. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck with me and find out. <laughs> um, so I went all ghetto on his ass for a little bit. <laughs> but uh, no, he said Aikido is, a, I guess I'm going to get this wrong, but it's not about fighting. You know, It's not about pushing energy this way. It's about dealing with the energy that comes this way and deflecting it. Right? How am I doing? Yeah. Right, okay. And I went, that's it. These notes aren't meant as a personal attack. I just merely need to deflect them, watch them as they pass. <laughs> and the way you do that is exactly what Matt said. That's interesting. I'll take a look at that. <laughs> that's exactly it. I never learned to say that's interesting. I'll take a look at that. I'd always want to talk about the note. And when you talk about it, that means the, the network person who gave you the note has to, has to talk more. And eventually, at about the 15-second mark, they will expose their idiocy because they really have nothing to say, and they'll then resent you for that. So it's a mess. It's just a mess. It's better just to say, that's interesting. I'll look at that. Well, actually, though, real quick, in my experience, the, the thing that I had to learn was the stupider a note is, the more important it is that you don't resist it. Because the problem is, if somebody says on Rescue Me, like... Maybe uh, maybe they should stop being firemen this week, and and they can all and it would be like a fun special episode where they all become ballet dancers for the week. And now, if you resist that, you are going to embarrass the fuck out of someone that you have to deal with every day for the rest of the duration of the show. So the stupider the note is, like the more someone hasn't thought about it or whatever the the more they're going to have to double down if you resist them because you just made them look like idiots on a notes call. And it's never just you and one other person on a notes call. It's you and 10 other people on a notes call early in the process. And once you're into the series, it's you and three or four other people on the notes call. And God forbid someone say something really stupid and then have to justify why, no, they have to be ballet dancers and why are you being such a prick? And, you know, that kind of thing. And so... Uh, if you want to let it go, you better not resist it because you're, you, you, those people can't afford to look like idiots. And so, because that's their jobs on the line. So if you really call somebody out and say, Hey, I'm resi you know, th this is a really stupid note. If you are right, they could lose their job. And so if somebody says a really stupid note, that's the time to say, wow. You know what? Can we call? Can I call you back? And I, I want to think about that a little bit more. And I want to go through the the ideas. And I'm just going to call you back, and we can talk about this a little bit more. Can we? So can we just put a pin in that one a little bit? We'll figure it out later, right? And then you can call them back and sort of talk very them good. slowly through. Very good. Very diplomatic. Yeah. Well, you just talk them slowly through that, and you say why, like their their instinct was really good, and why you're totally running with that, and you're going to make them look great, right? You're going to make them look smart. You're going to enhance their ability to do their job. But that's the thing, like, it, and and in my and I believe me, I I learned my lesson on features. Doing because you know resisting notes and stuff and you know it, it, in features it's very simple and very ruthless. You're just gone. You're just you're fired, right? That you don't you're not working with those people forever. They replace you and and it's so brutal in features where you're replaced and then um, they just never call you again. So you can literally be on a job and then like oh I read in the paper that I've been replaced. 
Terrific. Will I ever hear from those people again? No, not for 10 years. At which point they call you and act like nothing happened. Yeah. I don't remember it that way. Yeah. I seem to think you went through all your steps on that project. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nothing but good things. Wasn't that great? Yeah. Uh, I, I just have one more question. And David, I'm going to let you uh, lead us into it because we were talking earlier about uh, the dire straits of being a writer in Hollywood right now. <laughs> Not for me. Um, but, no, but for all of us. Right, yes. Uh, I'm fine. Um, it's, don't uh, worry about David Schultz, yeah, everyone. <laughs> You're not going to make it to your car. <laughs> I've a couple years for you. Um, Bidding war. It's, uh, you know, I've just, I'm different from these guys. Uh, I've been on staff every year uh, for 10 years. Um, and I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky to have gotten in how I did, when I did. Um, I mean, talk, there's a lot of talk about white guys, white guys, pilots, white guys, whatever, white guys, and it's true. There's a lot of white guys writing for TV, and the networks have um, <laughs> have a mandate um, to to open the doors to writers of color, uh, female writers, diversity writers, and there's never been a better time. There's never been a better time for those writers... To not be a white guy. <laughs> for those writers to, to, to get a break that they didn't have before. It's, um, yeah, it's been a long time coming, and right. it, it's due, yeah, absolutely. but it's also if you're a white guy. If you're a white guy, a you know, you really have to... You have to do something else. You have to yeah. wow them with a movie spec or a, a TV spec, or, but you know, there's a lot of pressure from the showrunners to... to high, you, know, you need to fill out your staff... And the network's going to pay for your staff writer, your diversity staff writer. They're going to pay for your female staff writer story, you know. So the pendulum has swung, as far as the pendulum swung one way, it swung just as far the other way. Um, one day we'll reach that kind of middle ground. But until then, there's just the overcompensation that'll, that'll keep swinging. Yeah, and we've talked in recent weeks, if you guys have been here, about how staffs are smaller. You know, there may be more narrative shows on the air, but the staffs are getting smaller. Um, so I want to talk to uh, Matt and to Peter. You guys are in the position to hire your staffs. What do you look for? How does someone sell himself in the interview? Either in an interview? I haven't had to put a staff together in um, years because on the job and on Rescue Me, there was no staff. Really? It was really just Dennis and I and one other guy. So we, we never had a staff. But I have two pilots that are looking good, which means, of course, they're both destined to fail at this point. <laughs> but they're looking good. And I've really, I've really started to think about having to um, put together a staff. And I think primarily you're just looking for a, because they're both comedies, you're looking for a distinct comic voice. You know, and that's, that's sometimes hard to put a, a finger on, but it's just somebody who you can tell in the... In the, in the just from looking at their writing, that there is, they know that they just know how to be funny, and there's some aspect of their own personality in it. It's not funny, like any other person. You know, it's it's just something that breathes, lives and breathes on the page, and you can you can see it. You know, you can definitely see it. You pray to find those people who have their own comic voice. You know, sometimes that's hard to find. That's why I think a spec script, which has for years and years been the the 
you know, the acknowledged way of getting into the business is crippling in a way because you a, a successful spec script, just like supposedly mine on Murphy Brown, exactly mirrored one of the actual scripts on the show. I mean, it, they said it looked just like one of our scripts. So your ability to assimilate is highly prized, as is your ability to show what an individual you are. So those two things don't necessarily go together. But that's sort of what I'm, I, I'm looking for. And then it's beyond that in terms of meeting the person. You just want to see that they're clean. Uh, that helps because you're going to be stuck in a room with them and that they don't come right in with, you know, the Satan worship or the 9 theories <laughs> or all that. Where you're going, ah, oh, I'm going to have to listen to this all the time. You know, so that's, that's mostly it. It's fairly simple. Once they, if good writing, I don't... Even if they stink a little, I'll be like, okay, <laughs> just leave a window open. I don't care. Um, I put together two staffs, one for Bernos and one for the good guys. And um, I will say I come to it from a little bit of a different perspective because both of my shows are remote location shows. Um, Bernotta shoots in Miami and the good guys shot in Dallas. So it didn't matter who I was hiring Anybody that I hired needed to be able to write a script and then go to that location. All of my writers are always on location the entire time while it's shooting. And they had to produce the script. And it also meant that, like, and I delegate a lot of power to my writers because I have to. Um, because I can't, I mean, especially last year I'm running two shows at, at a time. I can't take calls about costumes. I, you know, the... If, if such and such a scene needs to be changed to another location in order for the, the shooting to work, that's a decision that needs to be made by the writer and confirmed by me, not made by me and then confirmed by the writer. And um, so that means that when I'm hiring somebody from top to bottom, I am hiring someone who I am saying, you go out and you speak with my voice. Um, like you have the authority, staff writer, of the executive producer when you are in Miami. And so that means that a lot of staffs are hiring – I'm not really a sports fan, but I'll use the analogy anyway. Um, they're hiring uh, baseball teams, right? They're putting together – they need a third baseman. They need a pitcher. They need a catcher. All these different skills, and then they put it all together, and it becomes a baseball team. I hire basketball teams. People might have a specific thing they do that's a little different, but everybody's scoring everybody's passing, everybody's running up the court and down the court. That's the way it works. And so for me, I look for, um, uh, a big thing I look for is just personal affinity. Like, is this somebody, um, is this somebody that I feel will go and I can trust to speak with my voice who I think can handle actors, um, who I think can handle producers, who can be diplomatic, who can make decisions, who has the leadership qualities to produce. And that's a very rare thing. I mean, most most shows don't need to do that. I happen to need to do that. Um, and then uh, somebody who has a unique voice but can sound like me. Um, I mean, that's a huge thing. Like, my, my shows are very voicey. They sound like me. So you got to be able to sound like me. And I can't send somebody out to change lines on set. You know, uh somebody's got a 5 a.m. call in Miami and they have to call me to change a line, they got to call me at 3 in the morning or, or 2 in the morning. It's not going to happen, right? So I need people who I can trust if they need to change a line on set and I can never hear it, 
until we see it in the editing room, they have to speak with my voice. So that's the other thing I'm looking for. So I'd say leadership, uh, that um, ability to mimic me. And then the, the other big thing is just um, raw ass busting um, and respect for the job. I think that like I only hire patriots. I don't want mercenaries. There are a lot of mercenaries in town. And if you want to work on burn notice, like what do we talk about at work? We talk about burn notice. What do we talk about at lunch? Burn notice. When we go out for drinks after work, we talk about burn notice. Like we live and breathe that fucking show. That's all we do, right? Same thing on the good guys. Everybody was a patriot on the good guys. And when I have, when I, you know, I've had a few mercenaries over the years who were just punching a clock and doing a job and they're not working on my shows anymore. Um, they may be great writers. They're just not people that I can use particularly because I need people who live it, breathe it, think it all the time. And uh, the last thing is speed. Um, uh, there are actually a couple guys here who uh, worked on The Good Guys. And a big thing for them, I the one thing I knew because of the whole like white guy thing was that I could not hire a white guy writing team. Like That was not going to happen. But I was interested in developing with these guys. And so they were uh, – because they worked on – the Oaks, actually. And I knew that they had done a lot of ass-busting on the Oaks as the, the writer's assistants on the Oaks. And so we knew some people in common. And um, and so I brought them in and I said, oh, well, I'm interested in talking about this project. And every time I gave them notes, they'd call me 9 a.m. the next morning. Done. Right? Send me the document. Done. Turn it around right away. Done. So when I had to put together a staff well yeah we'd really prefer you not hire this writing team because white guys and you know how it is and i was like yeah well fuck you because i have to because and they ended up how many did you guys write last year Four. yeah they wrote four of 20 episodes for their first job in in television <laughs> and why because when we were behind the eight ball and i needed uh an episode they came back from dallas uh i needed an episode seven days later uh, we were a number of things had gone wrong, and I said, "Guys, I need you to write an episode in seven days." Seven days later, they went back to Dallas with a completed episode. Turned out great. Sir, I'm thinking about burn notice. <laughs> oh. I think we all are right now. <laughs> no one here is. I don't give a shit about the questions. I'm thinking about burn notice. <laughs> Hired. Thank you. How fast can you turn around a script? <laughs> That's my question. How fast can you turn around a script? I've done them in, in under. Well, I was a younger person, so. <laughs> but I when when I did Larry Sanders, and it was a year I did not work on the show. I mean, I always had a producing credit, even though I wasn't there all the time. Well, I think in the fourth or fifth season, I think we did 13 shows. I wrote four of them. I was not on staff. I wrote a, th a third of the season and several, I would say, f at least three of those in under 24 hours. <laughs> like, I get a call on Friday and Gary would say, we don't have a script for Monday. And I go, well, what stories do you have? Well, we have sort of this, sort of this, and sort of this. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. And I would bring a draft to his house. We'd go through it, make changes. Uh, and then that would go to the table and then shoot by the end of the week. And that happened more times than I can tell you. And boy, was I compensated. Hello. <laughs> really All right. Uh, let's go to you guys. Questions out here. Anyone? Really? Come on, you motherfuckers. You, Usually questions. I cannot shut you up. Yes. The question is, what's a good way to chart this course? How do you get into the room as a writer or as a writer's assistant, are you saying? Or once you are an assistant, to become yeah. a writer? What can you guys offer? I'd say um, I'd say two things. One, 
there's a lot of focus on becoming a writer's assistant because it seems like a step to a job and people, recent college graduates, not necessarily you, but tend to think in terms of what is the thing that I do in order to get the thing that I want. And the answer really is write a great script and make me staff you, right? The truth is experience in the writer's room is less important than you think it is. Um, I The first time I was in a writer's room was when I ran it, right? It's not like people think that that's this really big skill that you have to acquire. It's like talking story with your friends. I mean, it's not, or with your enemies on some staffs, but I mean, but yeah, I mean, that's basically the dynamic. I'd say that um, there are advantages to being known to people, but ultimately, uh, you know, once you're a writer's assistant, you're working a lot and you may not be writing your own stuff. And ultimately that's what you got to do to get onto a staff unless you get really lucky, which occasionally happens. Um, but, uh, but I wouldn't, gamble your career on it. I, I, would, um, I would agree with that. I would say that when I said Rescue Me, it was really three guys. The third guy was our writer's assistant on the job, who then started as our writer's assistant on Rescue Me and finally said, you know, I think I could write this. And we said, please, please, because, you know, we're dying. It's only two of us. And he did, and he was great, and he's now working on The Walking Dead, and, you know, he's got a whole career going. Um, so that, but I agree with you, though, that uh, that that's a very rare story. And that you should, I think it's important when you're young and starting out that you pick something that you want to do and then do it. Don't do a thing like it. Yeah. And so I would, if I was starting out now, I would write something fucking funny that was under five minutes and, and make it and put it on YouTube. That's what I'd do. There's my writing sample right there. And I'd send out the, the website address or whatever it is and... You know, I'd hire, I'd get a bunch of friends and, you know, actors and, and people who, you know, people who wanted to act and people who wanted to direct and people who want to use a camera and all that sort of stuff. And I'd make the thing and I'd put it up there. It'd be the best damn five minutes I could make. And you'd think that that would get seen. Also, would, I, would I, uh, development executives or studio people or whatever rather watch something done on a website for five minutes that they can turn off after 30 seconds if they don't like it? Or read your script. Which one of those do you think they want to do? Yeah, they'd rather go and go. And either they stick for the whole five minutes, they go, I gotta meet that guy, or whatever happens. That's what I would do. Actually, that's uh, in addition to their work uh, uh, on The Oaks, which I just heard about. Um, uh, Aaron and Wade in the audience um, had done a series of shorts. And uh, again, I, there were all sorts of reasons not to hire them, but I was doing a comedic cop show, and they'd made a series of comedic cop shorts. What was I going to do? You know what I mean? Like they're pretty I, much daring you. With that. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't. There's nothing else you can do, and so it's it's. Uh, the other thing is, as a writer's assistant, you can't really choose which show you get on. So, like, what if you get? What if you're the writer's assistant on Grey's Anatomy, and you're not a Grey's Anatomy? I mean, I. I could be the writer's assistant on Grey's Anatomy for 500 years and never get a job on Grey's Anatomy. It's just not my it's, – it's a good show. It's just not what I write. Or you just be in a shitty show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with some asshole who you know, doesn't have a family and wants to work until 4 o'clock in the morning every time, and you're stuck there. Yeah. You know? Not 
you know, and being told probably don't, you know, nobody wants to hear your ideas. That'll be good. <laughs> and I would add it's to... a sucky job. <laughs> <laughs> and I would add to, you know, have this, this short, this five-minute video, whatever it is, that's your calling card, but you better have then a script to back it up. Exactly. I mean, I think we can look to David's experience with the Oaks as sort of this story writ large, you know, where it's you, you wrote this spec that everybody wanted to get their hands on. Or, or a play. Yeah, or, or the play. Or a short story, or yeah. just... Whatever you're most passionate about, whatever story you want to tell, that's you have to tell, tell it. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind, were you here when Jane Espenson was here a few weeks ago? Uh, no. Uh, and no, Jane, I met her a couple of times and she gave me advice. Yeah. I mean, and, and one thing she brought up is, you know, as an unemployed writer, you have so much more time than an employed writer. Mm -hmm. So get that script right. Get that spec right. Yeah. Yeah, in the back. The question is about, uh, you know, once, you, once people have taken notice, do you need to bring a showrunner into you to go sell your own show? What do you guys okay, think? Like, and are you asking them? Because they have shows already. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, if you're going to get these things made with these people, you're going to have to bring on a showrunner. That's what it sounds like, right? Well, no, actually, my question is, uh, for instance, um, I'm open to having a showrunner, yeah. but I wouldn't know how to to actually approach. Well, actually, I actually had a show once where they put me, my manager put me with a showrunner, and it was the worst match ever. Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm going to put somebody with a showrunner, I really want to be able to say, this is the person that, you know, like you said, the front of this is what, they understand my voice, they understand... Um, that this can be a success and continuance. So I guess I don't even know how to... You've already said that the, the main part of it is a chemistry issue, yeah. mostly. It's finding somebody who you feel, first of all, hears your voice and respects it. That's a big part of it. And somebody who you feel you have some sort of connection with that you can at least communicate because you're going to be communicating your ass off as soon as you start doing whatever you're doing. So if you have that connection, hopefully that'll carry you through. But it's you've just got to be careful. It's you got to make sure you get up with the right person. And well, that's that's like having an agent. It's the same thing, although all agents suck. But I mean, you want at least one that's not going to kill you or something. The only other thing I'd say, and this is just an unfortunate reality, often um, you just need a showrunner in television is like saying you just need a director in features. It's a way of saying no without saying no, right? Because basically in television, the scarce commodity is showrunners that are trusted by networks. So in a way, they're saying a lot of times when people say that, they're saying, hey, if you can go out and get someone who is the sort of person that, uh, that we make things with regardless of what they bring us, then sure, we'll do it because we'll do anything if you bring us a showrunner of a particular stature that that showrunner wants to do. So basically they're saying, you go sell it to someone who can sell to us a lot of times. With regard to that marriage, though, I think it would be when, when you hear networks talk about this, about pairing showrunners, they really like the idea that showrunner is this job you do that is kind of like can be done in various contexts in the same way that there's some sort of the showrunner system that I use to run this show. And it's just not the case. I think if they, they would be better served by saying, go out and find a writing partner who's run a show before, because that's really what it is. I mean, you should choose a showrunner like you choose a writing partner or and, a wife and use it as a, I mean, you know, I, re I, you know, when I saw my pilot, they were like, you know, you need a showrunner. I was like, great, give me one. No, 
I don't know who wants to do this job by themselves. Hmm. It is the hardest fucking job in the world. And to have someone do it with you, all the better. To have someone you can learn from, it's going to be invaluable. I mean, Sean Ryan and I could not be more different as people, as writers. Uh, we're different on every level. But he probably has more integrity than anyone I've ever met. Thanks, man. <laughs> Including Matt. Um, and uh, we would approach scenes completely differently. But I was like, I can learn. I can. There's always a learning opportunity. Even if you get paired with someone you don't like. There's anyone with more experience. You can. I mean, I've learned a lot this panel. Uh, there's just take those opportunities to to open your mind. It's not done the way you want it to do. Want to do it, but there's so many ways you can learn, and just the next show you'll be better. Great. Yeah. The question about TV versus feature writing, and it sounds like the process and the business. Uh, how do they differ? I'll you, take this. You do both successfully. So let's, have, let's hear it. I did, I had a, a career path all planned out that I was going to do television and then as I got older and I didn't want it because it's really you know it's a very difficult job and uh, I now I'm just a worn out husk of a man <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> really the business ate away at me so so I decided I'm going to now I'll go into features you know and I started doing it I don't even know how I don't remember how but I started rewriting and doctoring scripts and a lot a lot of things a lot of shit by the way um, analyze this is probably the uh, the best movie of uh, other than a movie I made by myself, which I consider to be pretty good. Although who knows, it probably fucking sucks. But uh, um, and then and and I, that's what I thought I would do because I to me feature writing is much more humane. It, you have a much more time to work. It's not the machine that television is. Television is just like a grind, week after week after week, you're pumping out material. Whereas in a feature, you can actually stop and think and work, and you've got a month, two months, or whatever, to to write the script or whatever. And then what happened with my my master plan was that all of a sudden I looked around and features suck. I mean, look at the movie business now; it's horrible. There's absolutely nothing to write unless you unless you like sci-fi or if you like big tentpole things like that, then there's stuff to write. You can't get, I mean, if I wanted to make a, a smaller character comedy or something like that, I can't get it made. I cannot get it made. I've got scripts that everybody goes, this is a great script. What a great script. Never going to get made. Never. So I had to go back to television. I had to go back. At this advanced age, <laughs> I had to go back. I'm 52 years old. <laughs> When I started in television 22 years ago, I was late, I started, I started at 30, but when I started, I remember distinctly a guy on staff who is approaching my age now, getting a facelift so that he wouldn't, he wouldn't look his age. So I don't know what the fuck I'm still doing. <laughs> no, we're, we're lucky to have you here tonight. I know. Frankly. I should be dead. <laughs> it's surprising you made it down. Out of the business. So it's a much more humane. That's the, that's the difference. It's much more humane, it seems to me, in terms of the amount of... It's still, still the creative struggles and the difference in, in doing good work. That's always going to be a problem. But uh, at least you have the time to... If you fail, you, it can't be because you were rushed, usually. You know? But any, of course, anything can happen. It's, Everything's a disaster, but but uh, 
but the problem right now is just what's being made, and there's just not much of it. There's not a lot of output, and what is being put out is is always very. There's a very narrow bandwidth of what's being made and what's succeeding. And when it breaks out, when it becomes something different, it's only because one thing happened. Like for example, um, uh, what was the the Hangover a couple years ago? That all of a sudden ushered in a whole rash of R-rated kind of comedies, and and, and that's sort of running its course now. And then there'll hopefully be something else. But it's just tough to do good stuff. Yeah, I'd, I'd say. Um from a, are, are you really more asking from a creative perspective or a business perspective, or what's your, what's the? Creative. I, mean, yeah. I mean, I'd say that two things. I mean, one, I will second the feature business sucks. Um, it's, um, it is a humane lifestyle. Um, it's it's kind of nice writing a feature, and there there are attractions to it. If though you want to see things that you do get made, if you have that drive. You can't beat television. I mean, it's just like you're doing it every week. Last year, I made 38 episodes of television and a TV movie, right? Um, in the preceding eight years before my television career, like never, usually writing two movies at once, I made zero hours of anything, right? And uh, and that's typical. I mean, that's just, that's not like... And, you know, that's just the way it works because they're developing 20 things for every one that gets made. Um, but uh, from a creative perspective, the one thing I'd say, uh, the shorthand, I think, is if you tend to think in terms of big resolvable conflicts, and these days they need to be really big, really resolvable external conflicts of a particular kind, um, then that's a movie. And... Uh, if you think in terms of ongoing unresolvable conflicts, things that you can just do every week, you know, uh, whether it's uh, on a procedural level, like um, law and order can go on forever because crime's not going to stop, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and on a character level, uh, you know, you take a, a show like House, like House is not going to wake up one morning and go like, I'm really grump. I'm, you know, I'm not grumpy anymore and I'm just a happy guy. I mean, he did for a couple episodes, I guess. But <laughs> but ev eventually that's all about an unresolvable conflict in a man's soul. And I'm actually Rescue Me is a wonderful example of that. Um, despite your decrepitude. Yes. Um, <laughs> the. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, whatever the limitations of its creator, it was a. Um, <laughs> Uh, it was a terrific example. Larry's not here to defend <laughs> It was a terrific example of a, a show that was, it had, ex there were certainly external conflicts in the show, but it was all about this inordinately unresolvable conflict. That guy was never going to get better. So you could just do that forever. And that's a great way to tell if you, if, if you tend to think in terms of those stories, then you're probably going to have an easier time in TV. And if you tend to think in terms of great, big, resolvable conflicts, um, you know, and, and you see shows like, you know, good show, but the event was a great example of when you take a feature idea and put it in television. It's a great, big, resolvable conflict. And you put it in television and eh, it's kind of hard to do it for 10 years. So one year, one year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we have time for one more. Do you, is this an be good. awesome question? Uh, it's a pretty cool question, I think. I'm hoping. We'll see. Well, uh, I was uh, recently reading on John August's blog. They were talking about establishing your brand. 
And I wanted to t ask you, as a television writer, do you feel that you have to establish a brand? And if so, how narrow or expanded is that brand? That's a right question. Establish a brand. <laughs> this is what we're told now. Uh, establish a brand. Have you guys stumbled upon a brand, or did you set out to uh, have a brand to your, your writing? They give you one. I don't think you need to. <laughs> well, you have a deal. I don't think you need to worry about establishing it, because people are all too quick to pigeonhole you and, and put you in a little. I'm, yeah. I'm the character guy. Like, literally, I said I wanted to write on this. I have this great thing at NBC, an overall deal. You're at a network, and you can develop for them, or you, they place you on a show. You have job stability. And I read all their shows, and I said, this this great character show that I want to do. And they said, we already have those people. We have this big sci-fi monolith, and they don't have any character writers. So you're going to go there. You know. I'm sure John means something good by this, by brand. But it seems exactly that everybody in the business is so anxious to pigeonhole hole you. Why, why beat them to the punch? Mm -hmm. You know, why not just try to... Try, try to keep things open. Now, it's not. It's okay if you if there are things that you like to do. I mean, I would. I guess I would be the dark, edgy comedy, pissed off guy. Yes. <laughs> you look at Sanders. I don't I see mean, that. You look at Larry Sanders and the to rescue me. And you know, it's all kind of that. I'm not doing, um, you know, family stuff. Although now I am now, but. Yeah, you won't, you won't actually. You won't have the opportunity to. Um, people don't give you a bunch of choices like. Uh, uh, after burn notice, here's a menu of shows you can create. Um, I mean, there's a certain logic to. Uh, you know, I clearly have a brand at this point of. You know shows in which things explode. Um, <laughs> some sort of clever crime-fighting thing um, with uh, some mixture uh, of comedy and drama, more or less. On you know, But that's a brand that I established with, let's call it a show and a half. I mean, like two shows, uh, one lasting a year, one, you know. Matt, did you, when you did Burn Notice, did you feel like you could get that made because... You're the guy who did. You did good guys. You're the guy who did Burn Notice. Good guys has a lot of those elements. Did you feel like? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly, clearly, like the good guys could happen because of Burn Notice. But previous to that, just um, in, you know, John is a he's done some television, but he's primarily a uh, um, a feature writer. Previous to writing Burn Notice, which you know, like had something to do with a resurgence of action in television. I had written exactly zero action movies, none, not one time, right? And now in features, right, when people talk to me about features, I'm an action guy. Like people talk to me about action things because that's what I do in television. And clearly I've always done that, right? When I was in – a weird thing for me was when I was in features – I had two simultaneous pigeonholes because there are these different groups of executives and they don't really cross-pollinate a whole lot. So I was simultaneously the super dark NC-17 indie film like semi-comedy drama guy <laughs> and the bright children's film writer um, and then sort of toward the tail end of that, also the broad comedy writer, like the broad, you know, sort of uh, like guy comedy writer. And people, like just different sets of people knew me. And so I was sort of separately branded in these different areas in Hollywood. 
And if you'd asked any of the people that knew me as a children's film writer, they would have said, oh, no, he's far too soft to write an NC-17 indie film. And then the NC-17 indie film people would have laughed at the idea that I could write a, a children's film. So um, the only thing I will say is pigeonholes pay well. Um, I mean, it's true. Like, if, if you're pigeonholed at something and you become, like, the... Um, you know, the angry guy, comedy, television guy, well, you know, if somebody's got that show or they want that, well, there's a yeah. premier guy. And so you're going to pay. that's what they say when they call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they say. They say, we just want to bring some, a little bit of rescue me into this. And if you care to do it, then you can say, like, break out your checkbook. And that's then, right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's... I got the rescue me right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Where's the check? Yeah. It's Hansel and Gretel. I know that's a weird choice, but I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> the witch is there. All right, what the fuck? What are you kids doing here? Get away from my fucking house. <laughs> I can just channel Leary for the whole thing. Does the witch's... You gotta push me in the oven? Fuck you. <laughs> Does the witch's girlfriend have to be black? No, she... <laughs> no she's just been... We'll leave her in the oven a little less. <laughs> well, clearly that's it, folks. Uh, we just need to thank 826LA. Please visit them at 826LA.org. We need to thank Ed and Emily and Chris and everyone here at Nerdist Industries. My name is Ben Blacker, and thanks to our panelists, uh, what's your name, Matt Nix, David Schuldner, and uh, Turning 100 this week, Peter Toller. <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com.